Welcome to the podcast version of Robots in Depth and this launch episode with Melanie Wise in cooperation with Vvolver. Robots in Depth is supported by Aptomica. Visit aptomica.com to connect. You will find all past episodes and more on robotsindepth.com. Welcome to Robots in Depth. Today I'm honored to have Melanie Weiss here and we're going to talk about everything in robotics. Could you tell me how you started? Well, I think that that robotics for me has been very serendipitous, actually. Um, I think that I always had a a love of building mechanical things. Um, I think one (laughs) one of my earliest exposures to building mechanical things is my dad sent me to summer camp, uh, well, it was like a day camp, actually, not a summer camp. But Legos and programming was the focus of the day camp. And it was, this This was when I was like eight years old. So I think 1989, you know. And so, um, and you, you learned how to program Legos. And I was like the ambitious kid in the class. I was like, I'm going to make a plotter. Um, and I don't know if you if you remember, but they had like Lego kits where you could make a plotter and draw things and uh, I got overly into that. I, I think that I built the plotter, you know, really fast. I, I loved Legos, so I was really good at building Legos very fast. And then I I must have spent like the entire four weeks of that day camp programming the plotter to draw all sorts of ridiculous things. And I, I got really into just building things. Um, and I had a very voracious appetite for uh, just any kit that I could get my hands on. So chemistry kit, uh, Lego kits, um, you know, the, the Scientific America. I don't know if you, so uh, I, you know, for Christmas, I would like make my Christmas list out of Scientific America, uh, you know, servo kits, like the light following robots. and I'm thinking we're seeing a trend here. We're seeing where <laughs> things are going to go, right? Yeah, but it, it actually is kind of funny because because um, my viewpoint of all of that, after all of that, all of that uh, interesting stuff that I played with, I didn't, I don't think I had like the greatest uh, guidance into what I should be studying when I got older. So... So I went through high school, you know, I did what all the the nerds do, and I took all the classes like calculus and advanced chemistry and all of these things, preparing me for college. Like, yes. And and then I decided to become a mechanical engineer. And I had this like preconceived notion in my head that mechanical engineers build robots, right? But it never dawned on me for some reason that I should probably learn how to program. <laughs> Okay. And so I, I, you know, I, I went to University of Illinois and I studied uh, physics, engineering, and mechanical engineering um, at the same time. It was very ambitious. I don't know why I did it. Uh, and, but all through the curriculum, there was no robotics. You know, I was, <laughs> and I was like, I want to build robots. But there were, there were no, there's no robotics curriculum really at, at University of Illinois. And it wasn't until I, um, in physics engineering, they try and help you find what you're really passionate about, whether it's experimental physics, theoretical physics, uh, you know, and they, so as you advance through the program, you're trying to find what you're interested in. And I took this set of seminar series um, on analog and digital electronics, and you could build anything you want. And I was like, 
building a robot. <laughs> and so started building robots again. And my, my best friend, Derek, and I, um, we were probably 19 or 20, and we, we just started building robots, anything we could get our hands on. Um, we had no money, completely broke. Uh, and we would go scavenge parts. And our first robot we built, uh, it was called Zippy, and it was made out of plywood and some motors that we had salvaged. But even then, you know, there there wasn't much robotics. And then at UVI, there was a, a group of alumni who, who uh, wanted to do the DARPA Urban Challenge. And they got involved with the university. And there was this opportunity to come to California to work on this autonomous car project. So cool, huh? Yeah. And so I, you know, I was supposed to be doing my PhD, and I, I was, you know, not. Uh, You're still in physics now, right, with uh, the PhD? So I was doing, I, I was doing uh, mechanical engineering, actually. So I did undergrad physics and mechanical engineering, and then I just kept going with mechanical engineering. Um, but I, uh, Derek and I decided on our winter break to come out to California for two or three weeks. And I ran into the person starting Willow Garage, and he was like, I'm going to build a robot company. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. And he's like, you don't want to go back and do your PhD, do you? And I was like, I really should do that. And he's like, no, no. You know, people with PhDs, you know, that's not exciting. He's like, what are you going to do? Go back and do that for another couple of years? You could be building robots right now. And I, I made the most risky decision, I, I would say, in my entire like life. Uh, on a whim, I decided to leave my PhD program and come to California and start at Willow Garage. Just, and I was the second employee. Yeah, the, the, the rest is history. Yeah, say, right? uh, yeah I mean, it, was it was a risky decision, but I think it, I mean, you're oh, satisfied it worked with out. it now, right? It worked out, but it yeah. was so, I, I just can't remember my frame of mind that I just decided, yeah, I can drop everything and move to California next week. That sounds good. Mm -hmm. But I guess that, that's a fit between the person who asked you and what they asked you to do. I mean, yeah. they just asked you, the, there was the right person asking you the right question and say, this just fits me. I mean, somehow yeah. you knew you were going to do that, right? Yeah. When confronted with the possibility of entering a robotics playground, mm -hmm. I... How can you say no, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just not going to happen, right? And I guess the guy who asked you know that, right? Yeah. He knows that this is a, this is a done deal, right? Yeah. yeah. So would you talk a little bit about you, you're now the second employee. There's yeah. two guys, you and him there, and you're going to revolutionize the world with robotics, right? Yeah, so actually when I started at Willow, it was me and two other guys. So, um, and it was crazy because Willow was this big building and there were three of us <laughs> yeah i've heard about this before that the, the, yeah. the starting team sits there in this huge space yeah. right and it was funny because we we i don't know what we were thinking but we all claimed offices on opposite sides of the building <laughs> it's like oh that makes complete sense and so we were working on the autonomous car and some of the people from u of i were still coming um out to work on the autonomous car. And it's kind of funny because my best friend came out with me 
you know, to, to work on the car. And he, he got the same offer, you know, hey, come work at this company. And my friend was like, you don't know this person. I'm going to go back and get a job. And, and it's funny because he ended up out, out in California very close to me. And eventually we convinced him to come to Willow Garage. But um, it was it was very different in the beginning. There were there were three of us, and then we got another person uh, to join the team. So then there were four of us, and it was it was just so different. Yeah. I I can't even describe it. You know, like we had autonomous cars, and we were just you know we. <laughs> We had like installed command centers in the autonomous car. Like we had a screen that came out of the ceiling, and you could sit in the car and and you know tune controllers and things like that as we were out in the field doing things. And it was very exciting. Mm, I would imagine, huh? Yeah, and at the same time, the founder also decided to start a boat project. Mm, autonomous boat. Yeah, right? yeah. So and they they had like a, a contractor doing that while we were doing the autonomous car project and and then eventually Steve Cousins joined so he was the sixth employee I think and then that's when Willow went from like a ragtag bunch of individuals kind of building autonomous car and then there was this autonomous boat thing to something that was starting to look more like a cohesive path forward possibly mm. Um, so your your start wasn't the garage; it was a huge space, right? <laughs> well, so the, actually, what's really funny is if you look at the the original group of people, we actually started in a garage in Campbell um, for the for the autonomous car. They worked out of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, for being a car, of course, you were in the garage. <laughs> yeah, right? we worked out of a, a friend of one of the alumni's uh, houses out of the garage, and it was it was kind of interesting, you know, because. It did start very humble, you know, from uh, someone's garage to then moving to the Will Garage space, and then Will Garage just grew from there. Yeah, really, really cool. Uh, and of course, then you went from the autonomous cars into other projects for. Yeah, so the the car project and the boat project had like a, a an interesting past. Um, uh, one of the one of the things that happened with the car project is uh, we had a DARPA site visit and right before the visit started, uh, one of the engineers decided to program the firmware of the car, um, but there was a ground loop in the circuitry and it fried all the electronics. So you're, now you're dead in the water, yes. right? Yes, and, and there was no recovering. And and so that was kind of the end of our DARPA days. And then we, many of us moved on to working on the boat project. Mm -hmm. And that was also not well, <laughs> well managed. Um, it was kind of like someone else was working on it and then all of a sudden we had to take it over. And some of the things that were done on it were not awesome. Uh, for example, when, we f when the boat finally arrived and it was in the shipping container, and we wanted to take it out to work on it. Uh, we pulled it out and all of a sudden we smelled burning. The person who had delivered the boat had wired all the solar panels backwards. And so we had to- Ah, yeah, so it, it, as long as it was in the container, the container it was okay. It was fine, yeah. And so, you know, can you imagine two people that were like, 
we're getting the boat out, checking it out, and all of a sudden we smell this burning. And the only thing we could do at the time, because it was so hard to get the boat out, that we just took cutters and we cut all the wiring out of the boat because mm. it was really starting on fire. <laughs> That's bad. I know, it was terrible. And so the boat, the boat project was not long-lived. Um, <laughs> so it ended when you took the boat out of the, the, the shipping container, uh, right? Well, we, we wired it all back up, and we, we did some uh, test, autonomous test runs in the bay because we had been working on the software in parallel with the hardware for mm. a while. But it became apparent that uh, autonomous boats was not our strong point either. Um, and that's when... Uh, at Willow, Eric and Keenan came and pitched, you know, we've created this PR1. It's it's made out of uh, laser cut wood and, you know, we could we could take this vision, this vision of a robot and turn it into the mainframe that is com that, you know, is the computer equivalent for robots. And that that's when a lot of the like really big synergies started happening at Willow Garage. Suddenly, we had a, a very strong focus and a direction, and it was very ambitious. Like, if you look back at at how it started, I remember there's there used to be this, uh, you, I bet you could probably find the cache paged on Google. There's, there's this page uh, from pr.willowgarage.com where it was like the PR2 timeline. And if you look, we were going to finish the PR2 and all of Ross in 12 months. <laughs> I mean, really, 12 months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it, was, it was this crazy time because, because people were suddenly really excited and Willow was growing very quickly. We had gone from four people to six people to suddenly we had 15 people. And, and then we started the intern program then. And so the first summer... Uh, we had 15 employees and 20 interns, um, and so it was, it was suddenly like this really energetic time, and many of those interns that summer went on to become full-time employees. Mm. It was just like this massive growth, and Ross was iterating very quickly, and PR2 hardware was coming on slowly but surely, and, and it was, all I can say is that in the first two years of Willow Garage, it was electric. Like, and I, I don't think there's anyone who was there at that time that would disagree with that. There, Magic I mean, years, huh? Yeah, yeah. It was, I, I remember one of the employees telling me, like, you know, if I, if I sleep under my desk, Robotics will move that much further, you yeah, know. Yeah. Like, because because they didn't have to commute for whatever. Well, yeah, it, it was just it was just one of those times where you felt like you could really impact robotics. You know? And and you certainly did. The PR2 is a magnificent platform, and it's yeah. really brought robotics so much ahead. So many people have started working on it, uh, and you have an enormous depth in robotics. Mm -hmm. And this series is robots in depth. Yeah. Could we just forget all this, and you should talk about robotics in general. Sure. Uh, where do you see us, where, where are we now in robotics? Maybe related to the computer industry, mm -hmm. are we 1989, 1992? <laughs> uh, and then, of course, we're gonna talk about the future too. Mm -hmm. I think the thing is, is if you look at robotics, we're still in, in the infancy. Um, if you look at the history, um, we were talking about robots almost 40 years before we had even the simplest robots. 
Um, so that's like 1940, 1950, we had the first, the first robots. They were... The turtles. Yeah, and... the turtles. And, and then we... You jump forward 30 years, we're in the 1970s, and we have robots that take many, many hours to cross six feet of space. <laughs> um, but when you when you look at what they accomplished, it it's just mind-blowing, you know? One of the things when they show some of the first shaky demos, if you mm. listen to the video, they're like, oh yeah, oh, we're, communing, we're communicating back to this huge mainframe mm. that takes up this entire wall mm. with radio you know and you're like what yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we're so spoiled with all the, the, the all the things that already work like communication yeah. batteries computers on a chip and whatever have you yeah and and one of the the big things that happened in between you know the early 1960s and the end of the 70s is that we were starting to introduce uh computers and so some of the first robotic arms were run on computers uh the transformation math that we use and depend on today was was kind of understood during that time period and even allowing us to start running robotic programs on the limited computers that we had and and so i think in that in that moment computers and robotics were were kind of constantly pushing the limits of of what we were capable of. So, so at the same time that computers were being, you know, were in their infancy of some sort, um, robotics were were kind of pushing the boundaries lockstep. And then one of the things that happened is you look at the '80s and the '90s, and all of a sudden this massive diversity happened in robotics, whereas computers seemed to be kind of driving towards the personal computer and other devices that we that we now rely on today there's you know if you if you look at um if you look at pictures of computers it looks like the evolution of man it looks like we're all going towards walking upright and it looks like we're all running towards making tablets and and phones right um but in in robots it was like more of the Precambrian explosion. Yes, right? yes, it was. It really was. Suddenly, you you had people working on walking, people working on uh, insect-like robots. You know, all all of this huge, huge, huge diversity, and there wasn't a cohesive vision towards making a platform in robotics. And Pier Two is one of the the big platform pushes in robotics that that I know of. And maybe maybe I'm wrong, um, but so so in in between the end of the 1970s, early 80s, and 2010, we we didn't move forward cohesively as a group, um, and and that that's for many reasons. Um, we didn't standardize on hardware. Some of the hardware was innovating very rapidly: stereo vision cameras, lidar sensors. I mean, in computers, it was kind of like, we know what we need to make computer work. These are the input devices. These are the possible output devices. And maybe you don't need any of that. Maybe you just need the input devices and the program. Um, but with robots, you know, even the simplest robot has almost infinite configurations when you, when you think about it. Uh, 
You know, where do you place the sensors? What kind of sensors do you place? You know, how do you use those sensors? What are they sensing? Um, and what is the purpose of the robot? Yeah. Robotics is deeper, more powerful, but it's also much harder, as I. Yeah, and I, I think the, the other thing is, is that when people um, look at robots and then they look at their computer, they're like, oh, my computers can do all these amazing things. But when you, when you look at that, they've had, computers have had almost 30 years to evolve even the software um, that makes them work. And if you look at robots, there was a lot of effort into different pieces of software, but there was no cohesive vision. And when Ross came along and tied some of that together, um, and I wouldn't say that there weren't other frameworks that existed before Ross and that Ross is the, the ultimate solution, but it suddenly created a cohesive community um, that, that enabled these leaps to happen in robotics. I, I, I see 2010 when the Pier 2 and Ross were released together as kind of a springboard in robotics. And, and maybe I, I have that, that vision because, because I was there participating in it. But I, I think you can truly see the impact of it. Um, but I, 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 I really feel that we're still in a very infant stage because in, in, all, in all aspects of what robots can do. Um, because even, even if you look at the, the progression of the robotic arm, let's, let's just slice everything down to probably the one thing that, that is probably the most advanced um, in terms of uh, what it's been doing, the tasks it's been doing, the software that we have for it. Um, so in, in 1961, Unimate, hits the scene. GM, they're, they're taking very hot things out of furnaces with the Unimate arm, and that arm is not even computer controlled. It's controlled by tape or mag magnetic tape, right? It's just like a play and record. Um, fast forward, uh, 80s, we're using robotic arms with teach pendants. Um, we're doing some coding, right? And then we continue to do that. We continue to do that, and we continue to do that. Yeah, no real innovation. Yeah. I guess the innovation was more under the hood and in the details, yeah. because to, to adapt it to the market, we're talking a lot of automated production in car factories and other factories. And yeah, and, and so the, the, the way that we interfaced with those devices um, had minor evolution, you know, between 1961 and 2000. Um, and now we're starting to see some, some innovation. If you look at the UR5, they've really innovated the interface for how you interact with that, that specific arm, right? And so now with Ross Industrial, we're starting to say, hey, you know, there's all this research and this information that we have, this motion planning, collision avoidance. How do we make that available to these robust pieces of hardware that we've been using for the last 40 years. I mean, we have so much more capability, but we've yet to integrate it into these systems, and how do we do that? And so I think, I think that, that even, even in, in, 
in robotic arms, we kind of stagnated for a while. It mm -hmm. wasn't, and I, I understand it, you know, there's safety and all sorts of other things and, and how we interact with the, the devices, you know, today is a lot easier because we have tablets, because we have, you know, faster computers. And, and without those things, it made it very hard to do much more than have a program logic controller that, that controlled these robotic arms. And I, I think that, that robotics are, robotic arms are a great example of, of the infancy of, of robotic technology and showing that, that we've come a very long way, but at the same time, we've only come a short way in a very long, long path. So if we if we look at the future, I mean, cool robot you'd like to buy and you think with your extensive knowledge in the area that somebody could actually make that work mm. uh, and we could have that in three to five or ten years, what would that be? Uh, I mean, from the vacuum cleaner robot, the lawnmower robot, people have those already, but what would be that next thing, you the, think? The next thing I think is feasible or the next thing I really want? Let's do both. Let's start with uh, the one you want. Uh, the one I want, I, I would just love to have a robot to clean the house. Mm, pick up stuff, not vacuum clean then. Uh, yeah, Sort yeah. in order. Yeah. I, I think that's totally not achievable in the you, next. What would you think would be the main challenge of, 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 if we select a very small scope, we're not, right, do the hard stuff of deciding whether to wash this T-shirt in 40 degrees Celsius or 60 degrees Celsius, but... Is there any space there we could explore? Because I do want one myself too, yeah. just like you, you wanted. Um, so I think, I think there's several key challenges to doing robots that, that we have in our home. Um, before, before we even talk about what the task is. Um, and, and many of those key challenges are things like um, understanding social context, cultural context. Um, so if you and I have homes, yeah, yeah. um, we most likely have a bedroom. Mm -hmm. We most likely have a kitchen. Mm -hmm. Those are, those are simple concepts, right? Um, so when you come home, where do you, what do you do? You take your keys out of your pocket, you place them somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Charge yeah. the phone, hang yeah. off, take off outdoor clothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what I do when I get home, totally different. Right. So how do you how do you semantically convey even that notion to a robot? So mm -hmm. what does it mean for the robot to live in your home? As what opposed it, to any other home. Yeah. 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 So first there's that context. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so so say the robot you, we have is it's the come home robot. And so when you come home, it it does all that stuff for you. It has a little bin. You give it everything. And it's supposed to know what to do. I mean, it seems like a simple task, right? But how do you even start to teach the robot what it means to come home and what it's supposed to do? Without, I mean, it has to be uh, inferred from my actions by the robot because we can't yeah. expect people to program the robot. Right. I mean, if, <laughs> if, if we could give them uh, the manual and they program it, that might be manageable. <laughs> but then we have a market of four. So, right. I mean, it, the robot has to look at me and my behavior mm -hmm. and deduce what I want want to happen. And that I understand that that's a huge challenge. Yeah. Do you see any progress in this domain? Uh, I think there are some, there's some project progress. Um, 
people, there's this whole notion of semantic mapping. And, you know, now that we have the capability of dealing with very large databases, it makes it much easier because then you can basically create a map and a database that represents your entire home. Um, not just where things are XY, but XYZ and understanding, you know, and the tagging with that mapping can be much more dense and complete um, because it's, it's not just a bowl, it's, it's a white bowl, it's made of porcelain, it has, you know, the robot needs to know it's fragile, right? And how it interacts with that is very specific. And then this is where some of the, the cultural things come in. Um, you know, how, how we keep our homes is very cultural. And so I think one of the next really big barriers long-term is another, it's another uh, example of when you, when you have a programmer designing something and then they only test it on themselves, right? I mean, <laughs> and I, I'm, I think that, that challenge is, is so far away removed from the challenges that we're trying to solve today that I, I think that when you think about the idea of bringing a robot into your home in, in the kind of generic context, it's a very hard problem. But I think there is some me medium ground. So what if I said to you, you know what? You can have a robot in your home and it'll pick up your dishes and put them in the dishwasher and wash them and put them away. Hmm? But they I'll say, here's my credit card. <laughs> But all your dishes have to be bright orange. Yeah, I'm okay with that. My wife, she'll also be okay with it. For, I mean, say the everyday life. Yeah. When we have a dinner party, not so much, but for everyday life, we are going to do that trade-off and saying that if, it, if it's that kind of a day, we're stressed, we have yeah. limited time, we'll do the orange plates and the robot will deal with it. It's a Friday evening mm -hmm. or a Saturday evening. We'll do the, the nice dishes mm -hmm. and the robot will just leave them alone. I think if we have that choice, we're going to gravitate towards the orange plates and suddenly orange plates are going to be the standard and nobody knows why, right? Yeah, well, I, I think that's, that's an example of how I think technology, robotics technology is going to make it into our everyday lives is that we're going to make these concessions and we already do it. People, people don't really want to admit it, but many people clean up for their Roomba. <laughs> I mean, I, I interviewed, so at Willow we, we did need finding, and I, I interviewed uh, many individuals who talked about how they cleaned up before their Roomba um, or, or their electronic vacuum, you know, they, they would tuck in the tassels and they would pick up everything off the floor. Well, you, you do have to pick it up from the floor, yeah. otherwise it can't it can move stuff, right? Right, right, but, but when you, when, if, you, if you had come to someone, you know, before, before this robotic vacuum came out and said, look, this little guy here is gonna vacuum your whole room, but you have to clean before you vacuum. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when you kinda think defeats of, the purpose. Yeah, yeah, mm. when you think of it in the logical sense, mm. Like, that, that seems totally foreign to us. Why not just get the vacuum out? But when you think of it in the, if I just keep everything off the floor, every day this guy's going to run around and mm. do this for me, and mm. I don't have to schlep this vacuum mm. around, you're like, oh, that, 
that seems reasonable. Yeah, it's 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 a thing we do to together the robot and me. Yeah. I understand he the robot can't do everything, and and I I I don't want to do everything. So, yeah. and I heard actually that uh, in a family where they had teenage kids. Um, it took only it took the kids only a few months to realize if they kept the floor clean of, of stuff, the robot went in there and clean, cleaned the room. Mm -hmm. So they did that uh, autonomously. They just mm -hmm. realized that instead of me saying the the parents telling him to pick stuff up, the fact that if they did, the robot cleaned their room and they liked mm -hmm. it. So, yeah. yeah. So that was the dream thing. Maybe the robot that can do these things at home. Where do you see the feasible space? If I told you, here's a bunch of money. Make me a robot that can be on the shelves for Christmas 2018. Ooh. Or maybe 19. I give you another year there. Uh, the well, feasible one. I think the feasible robot is autonomous cars, honestly. Um, mm. But that's not going to be on the shelves. I know it's not going to be on the shelves, but you, you asked me what technology <laughs> I think is feasible. Um, and I'd like to see that a lot because yeah, I. Yeah, me too, of course. Yeah. I, I think it'll revolutionize society in some sense. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just from the fact that cars kill a million people a year worldwide, and how many get seriously, seriously injured? Yeah, that's why I think it's very important, mm. um, and I, I, I can't wait for that to happen. Mm. Um, let's see, something that is available in 2019. Huh. We'll skip the production stage. <laughs> we'll say when you're done with it, it's on the shelf, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just magic, yeah. magic. Uh, oh, geez, I. You're probably better equipped to answer that question than anyone I in know. the world, right? I I just have a very hard time seeing. It doesn't have to be general use. It could be for for, for a particular person. Uh, hmm. I think this is the multi-billion-dollar question, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, the the problem is, is that a lot of the things that that you would build um, cost too much to the consumer to bring into their daily life. I also think that if, if you had this pick stuff up cleaning robot or the clear kitchen robot with the orange plates, I think you'd be surprised how much people would actually pay for that stuff. Well, yeah, there's, there's, lots, of, there's lots of examples of that, like the hero robots, mm -hmm. the, the Heathkit hero robots. Um, <laughs> a lot of, there were more than 10,000 sold. And the, the equivalent price was almost $15,000. So there's, there's some good, uh, I guess, history for mm. demonstrating that expensive robot kits will sell into, um, I guess, hobbyists slash consumer markets. I mean, the sweet spot for a consumer product that you want to put on the market, it seems like the tolerance is for everyday consumer items, maybe in the, the hundreds of dollars for luxury items or things that people, um, like TVs, I mean, the, the upper limit's like $5,000. And when you look at what we can deliver for that price, it's not very much. So it still has to come down, huh? Yeah, I, well, because you need economies of scale. That's the biggest problem. Um, I, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the technology that you'll see that people will probably want to buy will be for specialized markets, like autonomous wheelchairs. Um, Less price sensitive, of course. Those are good applications I, I could see, you know, I see on the horizon. 
uh, prosthetic limbs, medical medical devices that are we're not that price sensitive to. I think are definitely capable in the next five years. I, I don't see that as uh, a big challenge. I, I think the consumer market, and I, I'll say this. Um, uh, Brian Gerke once told me that that roboticists are the worst at coming up with applications for their technology, mm-hmm. and I totally agree. I, I think that sometimes it's you know so much of what can't be done that you convince yourself mm. it can't be done. Um, and so sometimes I feel like I'm a dangerous person to ask what is and what isn't possible because I'm, I'm a pessimistic optimist. Yeah. You, you look back <laughs> at the time when you, you did that timeline of 12 months until Ross and PR2 is done, and you say, eh, I'm thinking I'm going to add a few <laughs> years to the next project. But I think also this is a very interesting insight where, where, you, where, you, where you have this experience. And when you do, f- it's like that decision of, of not going back to grad school and finishing your PhD. When you find that idea, somebody introduces you, you come think about it, and you say, wow. I can actually do that. Yeah. Then you're going to have a very solid footing for that feeling that you, it's not, you can't really articulate it and you really explain it, but you just know that that's going to be possible and it's going to be a market and it's going to be used and it's going to be great, right? Yeah, and I, I think some of the cynicism or the pessimism that I have is like, so today, if you want to pick up a gallon of milk accurately, how much do you think that costs? Uh, no idea, but quite a lot of money, I would presume. Probably forty thousand right? dollars, right? Yeah. I mean, if you and that's just the arm, right? Mm. <laughs> then you need the sensors. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, a gallon of milk's pretty heavy, and if you if you set that as the bar of something that you have to pick up in the home, yeah, it. I mean, it's not that heavy. I mean, it's not that heavy. No, we've got stuff in our homes that are in that weight span. Yeah. This has been fantastic. Thank you very much. I hope you liked this episode of the podcast version of Robots in Depth. This episode is produced together with Vvolver. Vvolver is a platform and community providing engineers informative content that help them innovate. It's how engineers stay cutting edge. Optimica is the founding sponsor for Robots in Depth. Optimica rents anything in modular robotics. Dream, rent, build. Visit aptomica.com to connect. I'm your host, Pasha Boy. Until the next episode, thank you for listening.